Thank you, thank you, thank you for uh, allowing the Orr family and me to go to Polishing the Pulpit, uh, PTP, in Sevierville, Tennessee. People from 46 states, 14 foreign countries, 5,300 plus people were present this year. One of the things that happened is I got to have supper one evening with Rod Kyle, our missionary from New Zealand, with Wassam Al-Alathawi, who was here just a few months ago and who works primarily with the Muslim world, and Logan Summers. That was a pretty great time. And it's wonderful to have made the investment in each of those men's lives that we as a congregation have been able to do over the years. It was fantastic. Thank you. Sometimes you need to put yourself in the preacher's shoes. Just as we who preach need to put ourselves in your shoes. If you were to tell the story of Jesus in seven passages from the New Testament, what passages would you choose? A couple of weeks back, we looked at the Old Testament in seven passages, and this morning, the New. Now, Before we get into it, think of that old song, Tell me the story of Jesus, write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. And as Christians, as people who belong to Christ, we need to have great commitment. Great commitment. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Matthew 6.33 Because Jesus has come, we need to have a great commitment to him and to his will. But we also need to have a great commitment to the great commandments. Look at Mark 12.30 and 31. As I lay the foundation for the seven passages that take us through the New Testament, I want you to first have in mind these things. A great commitment to the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second commandment is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang the law and the prophets. It's really just a summary of the Old Testament as a whole. Yet again, in John 5.39, the Bible says, Search the Scriptures. Jesus goes on to say that when you search the Scriptures there in John 5.39, you'll find out that they bear witness to me. That's why Kyle read from Acts 20 and verse 32. 
Because the Word of God says, I commend you to God and the Word of His grace that is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among them that are being sanctified, that are being made holy. Seven passages. Which ones would you choose? I guarantee you I had to think about this long and hard. The New Testament in seven passages. Passage number one. Turn in your Bibles to John 1. And John 1, 1 through 3, and then again John 1, 14. It seems to me that if we were to summarize the story of Jesus from the New Testament, it would be hard to leave this passage out. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So much is said in that first verse. If you mark in your Bibles, put down Jesus, the eternal Word. He's divine communication. The eternal Word. Because he was there in the beginning. It sounds so much like the introduction to the Bible in the book of Genesis. But in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, present with Him. So the idea of the Trinity or the Godhead is to be inferred. It's involved in that statement, it would seem. But also, the Word was God. As I'm fond of saying, anything that makes God, God, the Word has it, and He has it fully, perfectly, completely. The eternal Word. But keep looking at John 1 and look at verses 2 and 3. Because the Word, it said... All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He is the creating Word. He's the creating Word. The eternal Word is the creating Word. And really when we go back to John, and we think about John and its connection to Genesis, and God says, let there be light. There is every indication that this is Jesus speaking. For all things were made by Him that were made, and without Him was not anything made that was made. But not just is He the creating Word. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 1 verse 3, He's the sustaining Word. He keeps everything going. When I came in from Tennessee on Friday afternoon, we'd gotten a pretty good shower in these parts, at least many places. How thankful we should be for God's sustenance. And where would we be without it? But go down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the one and only God full of grace and truth. 
eternal word, creating word, incarnate word, incarnate, which means that our God came down to this world and put on humanity. There's a God in heaven who wants to have a relationship with us. So much so that he came down and put on human flesh. Second passage. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 19 and verse 10. Luke 19 and verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, sometimes people might ask, well, why are you doing this, Mike? Why are you kind of summarizing the seven, with seven passages, the old, and seven passages, the new? We live in a world where many do not know the story. Do, do, do we? Don't we? And where many people have not heard the stories in Bible classes or in their homes that many of us have almost taken for granted, God forbid. And so to help them see and to help you better see the great story of Jesus in the Old Testament and the New, the story of God, this makes a lot of sense. Because it might even be, Troy, a good point to begin talking with someone about the gospel. This great commitment and great commandment that we ought to have to the great commission, making disciples of all the nations. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. But here's the second passage. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Let's look at this briefly, ever so briefly, in its context. This occurs in a part of the Gospel of Luke that begins in Luke 9.51. Jesus steadfastly set his face. He resolves to go to Jerusalem. You see it in 9.51. Prior to that... Luke is talking about Jesus' ministry in and around Galilee. But now Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. 951 to 1928. Ten chapters Luke takes to develop the idea of Jesus going to Jerusalem. And we all know what's awaiting him there. Betrayal, trial, and crucifixion. Luke takes a great portion of the book to develop this idea of Jesus going to Jerusalem. And then he gets there and there's the triumphant entry later uh, in Luke 19. Now where does this fall? Where does, this, where does Luke 19 fall? Very close to the end of the section where Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, right? This story, the story of Zacchaeus, is the ideal response 
to the Son of God. It's the ideal response to the Son of God. And so many great themes of Luke all converge right here in Luke 19. God's plan for saving men. Joy. Divine necessity. I must go to your house. Salvation has come to your house today. Caring for the poor because Zacchaeus would go on to say, the half my goods I give to the poor. And here is this man, Zacchaeus, who is what by occupation? He is a chief tax collector. You talk about the chief of sinners in the minds of people. He is an outcast. He is disenfranchised by his own people. They think of him as a turncoat and a traitor. All of these things, these topics, these subjects converge in Luke 19 here, 1 through 10. And notice what happens. A man becomes a child. What does Zacchaeus do? He runs. He runs to see Jesus. A man acts like a child. What does Zacchaeus do? He climbs a tree because he wants to see Jesus. Hasn't Jesus spoken about the need to humble oneself and become a child? A man becomes a child. A seeker becomes found. He's wanting to see Jesus. He's seeking Jesus. But there's every indication that Jesus finds Zacchaeus. Because in the midst of a considerable crowd, he sees him in that tree. A seeker becomes found. Keep looking at the passage. And what we see in Luke 19, in these opening ten verses, culminating in verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. A lost man is saved. A lost man is saved. Today salvation has come to this house. Notice another thing that you can see here. The host becomes a guest. Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' home. And the host, Zacchaeus, becomes the guest. Finally, the poor become blessed because what does Zacchaeus do with half of his money? Give to the poor. Oh, the difference the Son of Man makes when we desire to see Him. Third passage. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Romans 5, 8 through 10. The New Testament in seven passages. Romans 5, 8 through 10. 
What I want to do is take this passage and just focus briefly with you on what it has to say about God. First of all, it mentions God's love. But God commends His own love toward us in that while we were sinners. God's love. Contextually, it speaks about those who were weak and without strength. It speaks of being God's enemies. It speaks of being sinners. And yet God loves. Yet He loves. Secondly, it speaks of God's action. Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Do you see it there? Look at verses 8 through 10 and 3rd. Notice this. It speaks of God's judgment. That we might be saved from God's wrath. People who were enemies and weak and without strength, people that were sinners, can be saved from God's wrath due to God's love in the action He has taken that Christ died for us. Isn't that marvelous? Y'all can amen that if you want to. Isn't that marvelous? And then you get to God's Kindness. We can be reconciled. We can be brought back together. It is as if Christ takes the hand of the Father and Christ takes the hand of the sinner and He holds our hands and He brings us back together all due to His nail-pierced hand. Reconciliation. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf God did span at Calvary. Three down, right? Four to go. Fourth passage. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And notice that Paul is talking about Things of first or primary importance. Things that are of primary or first importance. And he is talking about the gospel itself. And when he speaks of the gospel, notice the action terms, the verbs. The gospel that I proclaimed. Do you see that, number one? Four more, that you received. Third, the gospel in which you stand, that you stand in. Fourth, the gospel you are saved by. Fifth, the gospel that you will be saved by if you Hold it fast. 
if you cling to it. There's a lot to be thought about in this passage. In 1 Corinthians 15 has been called the great resurrection chapter because it deals forcefully with the fact, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And then the other half of the chapter deals with the fact of our future resurrection from the dead. And it concludes O grave, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It is apostolic sarcasm, holy sarcasm, because now Christians can face death. with the hope of future resurrection, the assurance of resurrection. Four down, three to go. Turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 38. Acts 2, 36 through 38. More I thought about these passages, like seven passages through the old and seven through the new, more I think that they'd be great for a gospel meeting, helpful for people in a seminar, even to those of you who are quite mature and have been part of the body of Christ for many years. We shouldn't tire of hearing such truths. Acts 2, 36 through 38. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pricked, they were touched in their heart, and they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter and the apostles said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Present on that day were people who were devoted Jews, people from practically every nation under heaven. And when confronted with the fact that due to their sin, they were guilty of crucifying the Son of God. They had violated the will of God. It's these people who ask, what shall we do? The answer given by Peter and the apostles is exactly the same answer that must be given by men of God today. He says, repent and be baptized. I want you to see that. It is not merely a suggestion, it's imperative. It's a command. And notice what the Bible says. Repentance and baptism, what are they for? Repent and be baptized for. What are they for? Mark that word for. It is a small word In English and in Greek, in the original language, it is pronounced ace and spelled E-I-S. 
It is found 1,768 times in the New Testament. And it means in order to, to have this purpose. Repent and be baptized in order to have forgiveness of sins. Repent and be baptized for the purpose of having your sins forgiven. The word in every major translation is consistently translated for. 1,768 times in your New Testament, it's consistently translated as for. It looks forward to what is ahead, not back. In other words, he's not saying repent and be baptized because your sins are forgiven, but repent and be baptized in order that your sins may be forgiven. A perfect parallel is Matthew 26, 28. Matthew 26, 28, where Jesus says, This is the blood of my New Testament shed for many unto or for the remission of sins. Jesus shed his blood, action forward, Progress, what's the purpose? So that our sins could be forgiven. The text says he shed his blood so our sins could be forgiven there. Matthew 26, 28 and Acts 2, 36 through 38 indicate that we are to repent and be baptized so our sins can be forgiven or remitted. It's very important to see this. When God says something's necessary for salvation, it's necessary for salvation. Forgiveness of sins, for forgiveness of sins. What the world may say, what a denominational group up the road may say, or what an erring brother or sister might say can never take the place of what the apostles have said. We talk about this passage being one of those important passages because it deals with how men can be made right with God through Jesus. Next passage. Five down, two to go, right? Titus 2, 11 through 14. Titus 2, 11 through 14. This is the sixth of the seven. This is really a tale of two comings, a tale, a story of two appearings. One has already occurred, the other is yet to occur. A tale of two appearings, a tale of two comings. Notice verse 11, for the grace of God which brings salvation, has appeared. Past tense. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. Past tense. 
teaching us, instructing us what Jesus did in coming the first time and living as He lived and dying as He died and rising as He arose and ascending as He did. All of it is about the grace of God, and that continues to instruct and teach us even now. Teaching us, instructing us negatively that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, grace needs to be taught. And the grace of God will cause us to respond properly to ungodliness and worldly lust. And then, positively, to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It teaches us how not to live. It teaches us how to live. Where are you in the school of grace? Is it teaching you how you should not live and you shun what you should not live by? And do you cling and hold to what you should? But look at the second appearing. And Paul marvelously and beautifully through the Holy Spirit connects these together. Looking for the glorious hope and blessed appearing of our great God and Savior. He's coming back. And we look forward to that by growing in the school of grace. Not pursuing ungodliness and worldly lust, but living positively in a serious, sober way, righteous way, godly way, with God's strength and help. Number seven, turn to 1 Peter 1 and look at verses 3 through 5. First Peter 1, 3 through 5, as most of you know, our sweet sister Dorothy Sykes passed from this life yesterday, yesterday afternoon. Of course, Harold had passed away just a couple of weeks prior to that, married for about 67 years. One of the things I've noticed as a preacher is often a couple that's been married a long time, when one goes... Sometimes they both go pretty fast. There are exceptions. But it's as if sometimes the person realizes that they just needed to stay on earth a little bit longer to care for somebody. And they realize that their life is basically fulfilled when that person goes to be with the Lord. So it is with Miss Dorothy. Look at this in verse 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has begotten us again unto a living hope. Mark that. The nature of our hope is that it is alive and well because Jesus is alive and well because God is the living God. Matthew 16, 16 through 19. Hebrews 10, 31. By the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now notice not only the nature of our hope, Notice the designation of our hope. That we have been begotten to this living hope by the resurrection of Christ from the dead to an what? Inheritance. The designation of our hope is that of an inheritance. 
Isn't that the exact word that Kyle read in Acts 20 and verse 32? I commend you to God in the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those that are being sanctified. An inheritance. But notice third, the description of our hope. Notice it. To an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven. Backpedal. How is this inheritance described? Incorruptible. It is time proof. It is time proof. As time goes on, our bodies don't. But the inheritance that we have is incorruptible. Notice, secondly, it says undefiled, sin-proof. Our inheritance is sin-proof. We go to a place where there will be no decay and corruption, where there will be no stain, where there will be no sin. And don't you get tired of the decay and the corruption and the stain and the sin? We need to be more homesick for heaven. Third, that fades not away. Death proof. Death proof. Fellas, we all should get our wives flowers more. Amen, ladies. But even when we do, sometimes we get them the flowers and they put the, you know, the vitamins and the minerals and all that stuff that comes in that neat little bag and the flowers last longer than they would normally, but they still fade. How marvelous it will be to be in a place that's in perpetual bloom and where people never die again. And notice what the text goes on to say. Inheritance reserved in heaven for you. I can assure you that God will not allow anybody to take that inheritance from you unless you are willing to give them the key to your heart and to your soul. Incorruptible, undefiled, fades not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith. Well, these are the seven that I've chosen. I hope that the presentation has been helpful to you and that it's made you just a little bit more encouraged to love and to obey and to serve and to go home one day to be with God. That's what it's about. It's the story of Jesus. 
If you're not a Christian through faith and repentance and baptism, just as we have studied, come to Jesus to have your sins forgiven. One who does not come to Jesus in faith and repentance and baptism to respond to His grace and what He's done at the cross cannot be right with God. If they know the difference between right and wrong, they can't be right with God. Come home. And for those of us who are Christians, let's encourage one another and let's love Jesus and live for Jesus together. Let's stand.